557 in your pew Bible. Helps you follow along and makes this sermon not seem as long. Um, if you can follow through those verses there. If you're new to reading the Bible, the big number is the chapter, the small number are the verses. We're going to just kind of work through the chapter as we uh, see it. We won't read it all at once, but it is a search for power and learning to live within the limits of life. The world says, your only limit is you. Michael Jordan said, limits are like fears, often just an illusion. So no limits, no fear. Want to get real kind of philosophical? Carpe diem, seize the day. But are life's limitations really only the ones that you place on yourself? You know, assuming that the only limitations that you have, that a life of no limits really puts you in a whole lot of power, doesn't it? It assumes that you have power to control, you have power to decide. And we like those motivational quotes. We like the motivational posters that go along with it, especially with heroes like Michael Jordan who have succeeded. Because we all want to believe that if power and control were in the right person's hands, namely me, namely you, then life would make sense. Isn't that what we all want? We all want to be able to look at our life and not be perplexed. We want to see here in Ecclesiastes 8.1, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. Our face shining. If you were in the Old Testament and you were in the ancient Near East and you lived back then, your mind would be picking up on that phrase, shining. You would probably think of Moses who came down from the presence of God and what happens to his face? It's shining. The great benediction they would leave the worship service with that many churches close a worship service with, Numbers chapter 6. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. And so shining is a sense in which you, you feel God's pleasure, you know God's presence. And oftentimes life does make sense when your face is shining. But other times our shining face fades like the morning fog. Because under the sun, triumphs and tragedies, they are not delegated proportionately. The truth is that none of us deserve good. We know that, good Christians. But we can't help but wonder that if God was really ruling this world, shouldn't triumphs and tragedies be distributed more proportionately in this life? I mean, shouldn't the cruel face more tragedies than those that keep the rules? Shouldn't faithful believers have fewer sicknesses than those that live for themselves? The truth of the matter is, ease and difficulty don't seem to be distributed equally in this life. And it's one of the limits that we experience of living life under the sun. Right? We can see the inequity all around us. There are the daily frustrations that you face in life, like the person who zips by you on the shoulder while you're in a construction zone, and you're obeying the rules, staying in your lane, and they get to the exit ramp first. 
what? They don't get caught. They don't get pulled over. But Laura and I get pulled over three times in D.C. on the way to have Gracie delivered in the hospital. What? Not just the daily frustrations, but there's also the deep frustrations. As Andrew and Christy have shared, those people that long for children. But then we read of Madonna, who has another child. Lord, Madonna? There are those in here that long to get married, and we read of Elizabeth Taylor or Larry King getting married again. There are those people in our church that have lost their jobs while they have worked hard, while others keep their jobs and they are lazy. There's times when cancer steals a saint and spares a reprobate. It's not that we don't believe that God's sovereign. It's just that we would like to see God's sovereignty show up a little bit more clearly. And at times when you come to church, it isn't helped by those people that have plastic smiles and platitudes. Brother, God never gives you more than you can handle. Oh, thanks for that. Sister, everything's going to work out all right. God works all things together for good. They're the religious equivalent of Emmett in the Lego movie. You guys remember Emmett in the Lego movie? There is corruption all around him. And what does Emmett sing? Oh. Look over here. Hey, thanks, Gail. Hey, guys, watch me throw this down. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of the team. By the way, I did not know how to ever redeem those two hours of my life wasted. But now in a sermon, it actually worked, right? So, I mean, here is Emmett who wants to believe that even though there's chaos and there's corruption all around him, everything is awesome. But what I love about Ecclesiastes is that it's one man's search for order and the blessing and the brokenness that he sees around him. And Ecclesiastes stares at all the frustrations right in the face, and he doesn't give you the plastic smile. He doesn't give you the platitudes. It's the only book of the Bible that reads like it was actually written on a Monday morning where you're really frustrated. And what makes the wisdom in his life ring hollow? It is a phrase that is often repeated throughout this book, life under the sun. Under the sun just means life in this world, life in this life. And we have to remember that this preacher man, this Solomon-like figure, he got to have all the choices and all the opportunities that we would want to have. He has tried leisure. He has tried work. He has tried pleasure. And now in Ecclesiastes 8, he tries power. Orwell said, power is not only a means for some, it is an end. What does that mean? There are some people that power is the reason they get up in the morning. They crave it. They live for it. And the preacher man has all of this aggregate experience. He has not only been a part of the team, he ran the team, he's lived the dream, and he doesn't say everything is awesome. He says only some of it was awesome. What's his conclusion? Power in the hands of humanity is vanity. It rhymes, so it probably should stick with you today. Power in the hands of humanity is vanity. So are we ready to listen to a man who had more power than all of us combined? 
Are we ready to listen to a man who tells us why is power in the hands of humanity vanity? We're going to see three reasons this morning why power is powerless to give you meaning in life. The first one here is life is unmanageable. He begins in chapter 8 with some practical tips to help you make life manageable. It appears to be kind of workday wisdom, how to act around a king. And basically, in verses 2 through 5, he says, act cautiously, prudently, and patiently. Look at verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. What are we supposed to do with those that we work for? Obey. Ecclesiastes 8.3 says, wait. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Quite literally, wait for the boss before you go and act. Obey what he says. Wait to hear what he says. And look at the second part of verse 3. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. What he's saying there is be careful to use your influence sparingly. We don't exactly know what this phrase here means of an evil cause. It's also translated a bad cause. But it could just mean be careful how much time you spend in the presence of your boss trying to convince him of something that you know is not going to gain any traction. Use your time with your boss sparingly. If you're constantly countering him on every single thing, he gets exhausted. Not just your boss. Children, we are glad you're here in the service. Teenagers, we're glad you're here. Does this also apply to any of those in authority over you? Constantly countering your mom and dad is not wise. Look at verse 5. It kind of sums it all up. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. There is a proper time. There is a just way of doing it. So act cautiously, prudently, and patiently with those that are in authority over you. This is wisdom that is actually useful under the sun. But even if you do all of these things, it will not fix things. It certainly won't fix everything, and it certainly won't fix things finally. This is not a fixing wisdom. This is like a, a waiting wisdom. Even searching for power and accumulating power will not make the world right. Having power will not prevent some very ugly things that the teacher has noticed, and he gives us, along with these practical tips, some, un, some really tough realism, some tough truths for us to see. Look at, first of all, here, the injustice that seems random in the world. Skip over to chapter 8, verse 10. He goes from practical tips to some tough realism in verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Skip back to chapter 7, verse 15. Chapter 7, verse 15. In my vain life. I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. He sees righteous people treated like wicked people, wicked people treated like righteous people, and it doesn't make sense. Life seems unmanageable. It's frustrating. And you have to understand the context in which they were living. Back in those days, they were living underneath the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant was a promise with the Israelites that basically you obey, 
you get blessings. That's kind of how it worked. You follow my laws, you get land, you get harvest, you get babies. And that's the framework that many of them were working with. It's like reading the book of Proverbs. You know, you work hard, you save your money, you're probably going to do all right in the end. But Proverbs is how things generally work. It's not a promise. It's just how they generally seem to be. It's middle class kind of virtues. But the preacher man, what he sees is that life under the sun is vanity. Did you hear it at the end of verse 10? This also is vanity. You can also see at the end of verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. That's how he concludes life under the sun is vanity. The sour truth that life is unmanageable. Second, the future is unpredictable. Look at verses 7 and 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 7 and 8, the future is unpredictable. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or to catch the wind or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. What's he saying? What we often say. There is no rhyme or reason, sometimes to the events of history or to the events of an individual's life. Underneath the sun, we sometimes ask, why did this happen to me? Why did I experience this? They're perennial questions. There's nothing new there. And the unpredictability of the future can even press on you during this holiday season. Our church family has been face-to-face with this. I think it's helpful that we're going through Ecclesiastes. This question of, is this the last Thanksgiving I'm going to have with X or with Y? Will this be my last Christmas that we have here? We see the future so unpredictable that not even a king knows how everything will turn out. Here's the point. Even if the king knew it all, he can't control it all. If you saw how everything ought to be, you still don't have the ability to control everything. None of us do. You're not even a king, and you know that to be true. Think about the last time you lost your temper. Go back in your mind. When was the last time you lost your temper? Maybe you planned that perfect date for your fiancé, for your spouse, and they had to work late. (sighs) Why even bother? Dinner's cold. Spent all this day slaving for this. Maybe you're a college student here and you had that one night left to finish that paper that's due the next day and your computer crashes. Or how about this one? You were going to come to church on Sunday and you were going to be here on time and that baby in the car seat, the diaper could not handle all that was contained in there. And you all of a sudden lose your temper, and it shows you what? It shows you that you're not sovereign. You can't control everything. But I live, and you live, and we all love to live under the delusion that we are in charge and in control. But even if we knew it all, we couldn't control it all. 
And then in verse 9, the darkest secret of all. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had pow power over man to his hurt. What's he saying? If you actually had the power over everything and you had the power to control it all, you would pervert it all. What would you do if you had all the power in the world and not even God knew what you were going to do with it? Solomon says here, when man had power over man, to his hurt. That's why Tolkien is getting at in The Lord of the Rings. The whole story is about this mission to destroy this one ring. Why is it important to destroy the ring? Here's why. Take a look. It began with the forging of the great rings. Three were given to the elves, immortal, wisest, and fairest of all beings. Seven to the dwarf lords, great miners and craftsmen of the mountain halls. And nine, nine rings were gifted to the race of men who above all else desire power. For within these rings was bound the strength and will to govern each race. But they were all of them deceived, for another ring was made. In the land of Mordor, in the fires of Mount Doom, the Dark Lord Sauron forged in secret a master ring to control all others. And into this ring he poured his cruelty, his malice, and his will to dominate all life. One ring to rule them all. One ring to rule them all because with that one ring, right, comes great power. Everyone thinks they're going to use that ring for a good purpose, but it corrupts everyone. Wars are raged. Uh, relationships are stressed. We have Gollum who says what? My precious. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. You guys helped me out over there. But it corrupts everybody. And what Solomon wants us to know is this. There are no hobbits in our world. If you were to have all the power there is, you would corrupt it. Power in the hands of humanity brings vanity because it's corruptible. Power given to human beings can never make things right. It usually makes things a bigger mess. Life is unmanageable. The future is unpredictable. And finally here, death is unavoidable. This is the ultimate frustration to the preacher man. He's frustrated with this question. Why bother to live like Billy Graham if the same thing happens to him as it happens to Howard Stern? Why go to church if it doesn't make any difference in my life? Read Ecclesiastes 8.8 8 with me. No man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. No one can control death any more than any of us can control the wind. You do not have the power or the ability to cancel your engagement with death. You don't have the power. You can't postpone it. You can't reschedule it. And the scary thing is you couldn't even schedule it in the first place. Solomon says you didn't reserve your birth, so you cannot delete your death. 
He will not appear in your day planner presenting you with advance notice. No man has a power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Death comes to us all. And so you can amass money, you can amass pleasure, you can hang degrees on the wall. But what the Verve sang about in their song, Bittersweet Symphony, that's what they said, cause, it's a bittersweet symphony, this life. Trying to make ends meet, you're a slave to money, then you die. It's a bittersweet symphony. It goes on and on and on and on and on. What are they getting at? This profound truth. You're really not ready to live until you know how to die. If you don't know how to get checkmate, what's the point in pushing all the pieces around? Bishop to F9, Rook to A4. Death makes nonsense of all of life's distinctions. I know that we're maybe tired of hearing that through Ecclesiastes. My dad's coming to visit next week, and I know that he's going to say, can we get something else uh, on the schedule? I'm tired of hearing about dying. I don't like this. What? I was talking to CCA this week, and I asked them, do you find it ironic that people spend more money on Halloween and all the decorations and celebrating death in one little week than they do on any other holiday. And I want to go up to our neighbors and say, if you love death that much, there's a place you can go every week that talks about death. Church. Come to church where we talk about death. It is better than what you'll hear on the news because the news always wants to tell you, oh, no, 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 it will be fine. Just don't think about it and it won't be Think warm and, and you'll be warm. Bogus. Hebrews chapter 9, 27 says, And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. There is not one person in here that doesn't know that they are going to die. And if you would think that if there's someone who had a remedy to the problem of death, you would think they'd be in constant demand. You would think Pastor Pat and I schedule and every other gospel preaching pastor would be called to be on NBC, CBS, ABC with a little sideline heading, Hebrews 9.27. Come and tune in after this commercial to learn that you will die. And let's hear the experts that will tell you how to live your life in order to prepare for eternity. It is not that death is so short, it is that eternity is so long. Are you prepared? Be great if we heard that on the news. The preacher man is frustrated with death, showing that life is unmanageable, the future is unpredictable, death is unavoidable, injustice, ignorance, death are all frustrations that make his life vain. And it's vain, though, only because he sees life under the sun. The preacher man is stuck in a snow globe. He doesn't see the big picture of what God is doing. So would you take a couple steps of faith with me this morning? There's another man whose name is Asaph who wrote Psalm 73. Turn back in your Bibles to the left to Psalm 73. He had the same experience as this preacher man. He saw frustrations in life, but he did it while trusting in God. Pat read many of the verses earlier in the message.
And he has the same question the preacher man has. He starts and he ends correctly. It just takes him a long time to kind of get there. Look at verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He tells himself that. Look at verse 28. But for me it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. That's what he knows he's supposed to believe. But in the middle of Psalm 73, he doubts God's control. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, but my steps had nearly slipped. He was envious of the arrogant, so he's doubting. He has envy. He even almost blasphemes. But in the middle, in verse 16, he goes to church. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, life under the sun. Until, verse 17, I went to the sanctuary of God that I discerned their end. There is a famous story, I think Pastor Jeff told it, about two farmers. One was a pagan and one was a very, very faithful Christian. And he prayed and he gave thanks for his crops and he tithed on it. And it just so happened that, that one year there was a huge hailstorm that kind of wiped out the Midwest harvest that year. And it happened to wipe out the, the faithful Christian's crop. But the wicked man, his crops weren't touched. And he goes over there to mock him. Where is your God? Your God couldn't provide for you then. And I think Pastor Jeff, who probably delivers a punchline better than anybody else I know, quotes the farmer as looking to the wicked farmer and says, yes, but God does not settle all of his counts in October. You have to look to the end. And so he says here, I went to discern their end. God's timetable is not ours. Consider this. Hypothetically, it snows in November. Just hypothetically. <laughs> Consider that you're driving down from Portsmouth to attend an 8 a.m. church service, and you're a college student. And the roads are icy, your car begins to slip and slide, you're in crisis. What do you say? I got no, that's not what you say. You, you cry out for help. Pride is what you have when you are the king. Prayer is what you do when you need a king. Pride is what you have when you are the king. Prayer is what you do when you need a king. And even though Asaph does not feel like praying, that's exactly what he does. And even though he doesn't feel like going to church, guess what he does? Goes to church. Some of you just need to hear that. Even when you don't feel like reading, even when you don't feel like praying, even when you don't feel like going, that's what you need to do. And this is his prayer. Lord, I'm busted up. I'm hurt. I'm sad. I'm scared. I can't feel anything. I'm numb. Look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Would you take a step of faith this morning and see God's hand? The word hand is used 1,800 times in the Bible. 1,300 of those times it's used figuratively. And it's a better picture to get across this idea of God's providence. Big word for our young people here, but providence in other ways in that God's hand is holding you. You can feel it. You can see it. He's controlling things. And when you're out of control, you don't have power to orchestrate the events of your life, would you see God's hand. God knows what he is doing, even if it doesn't seem like it. Would you flip to your bulletin and look at the poem on the back side? 
I hope you got a bulletin. It's a famous poem called The Plan of the Master Weaver. We don't quote poems here often because I'm not that smart, uh, but here it is. Our lives are but fine weavings that God and we prepare. Each life becomes a fabric planned and fashioned in his care. We may not always see just how the weavings intertwine, but we must trust the master's hand and follow his design. For he can view the pattern upon the upper side, while we must look from underneath and trust in him to guide. Sometimes a strand of sorrow is added to his plan, and though it's difficult for us, we still must understand that it's he who flies the shuttle, it is he who knows what's best, so we must weave in patience and leave to him the rest. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God control the canvas, unroll the canvas, and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needed in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. If you're not a poet and you're more of a jock like me, you at least get Karate Kid. And in Karate Kid, you have daniel son and Mr. Miyagi. And Mr. Miyagi tells daniel son wax on, wax off, paint the fence. Wax on, wax off, paint the fence. And he doesn't get the big picture, right? And he's frustrated. He yells at Mr. Miyagi. I actually played it back to see if I could use it. He swears at Mr. Miyagi. And you want to yell at the TV Stop! Surrender! Follow Mr. Miyagi. He knows what he is doing. And if you can scream at the TV about Mr. Miyagi, can't you trust God knows what he's doing? What do you think about Joseph at the bottom of the well? You know what I think is going to happen? I'm going to save the nation of Israel by becoming the second in command. I got a feeling the well is the pathway to me saving the nation. Is that what Joseph thought? No. What good would have come out of Pharaoh's decree to kill all the children? And yet if it wasn't for that decree, Moses would have never been put in the basket. Moses' mom did not just wake up one day after a sleepless night and say, I'm just going to put him in the Nile. <laughs> I'm just going to get rid of him. <laughs> That's not what she did. Okay, it was by necessity that she had to put him. Okay, we might think about it, but back then, you know. <laughs> yeah. All right. But it was from that position of necessity that Moses gets found, gets raised up in a position of power, sees the plight of his own people, and the exodus happens. Who could see anything good of a crucified Messiah dead on a Saturday? Does the injustice of this world, does your ignorance of the future, does the prospect that you and I will die cause you to get closer to God or further away from God? When life doesn't make sense, do as Asaph did and not only see God's hand, but hold God's hand. We take God's hand because he first took hold of ours. Any parent in here knows that when you walk across the street with your child in a busy intersection, who holds whose hand? You hold their hand, right? Because with any moment's notice, they might just see a ball, see a candy cane, see something, I don't know, and just want to loosen it and run 
and you have to hold their hand. Friends, God has your name graven in his hand. No one can pluck you out of his hand. When the world forgets you, your Father in heaven never does. It's an inseparable kind of love. Would we close our service with Romans chapter 8? Flip there in your Bibles. Romans 8, beginning in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sakes, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not that nothing bad will happen, but that nothing will separate us from the love of God. If you'd like to know more about what does it mean to follow Christ and to know God in this unjust, suffering, pain-filled world, I'd love to invite you to meet me at the door. I want to give you a free copy of this book called Knowing God. The first chapter is all you have to read. It's a whole book, but if you read the first chapter, I'll buy you lunch. And in this first chapter, he compares two different kinds of people. Those that are struggling with God and wanting to believe in him, and they're on the balcony. They're looking down. It's a philosophical argument, and they're never satisfied. They're always trying to say, oh, I don't know if that's good. I don't know if that's good. You know, maybe. And it's just an intellectual debate. But then there's those that walk the road, that know God. This whole book is for those that would like to know God, not in the sense of intellectual debates, though we'd be patient to do that with you as well, but we'd much rather walk with you down the road and say, see God's hand, feel God's hand, hold God's hand as he is holding yours. If you'd like that book, see me at the door. Let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Dear Lord, I thank you for this full worship service to taste and to see that you are good. Lord, truly your blessings are new every morning. We, we thank you for uh, people uh, let, like, like Jamie who played the violin this morning. We, we thank you for uh, encouraging our hearts that. We thank you, Lord, for just being able to stand with people singing your praises, to, to hear Hope George singing in my ear. God, it was just beautiful and encouraging to trust in you. God, to hear the vulnerability and the transparency of Andrew and Christy and to see how they have truly learned to see your hand, to, to wait and to feel it during their times of doubt but also to hold your hand. We thank you for, for the blessing of adopted children. God, we give you praise for so many families that have been foster parents, that have adopted children as well. God, we give you praise for how you gave us a passion to, to love others better than ourselves. We thank you that these stories abound. We thank you that, that time has progressed, that even some of our children here, uh, people don't even know that they're adopted. They, they look like their parents. They, they've been a part of our family for so long. We thank you for the beautiful picture of what that is in sonship. Lord, truly to hold your hand, to feel it, and to see it is one of the greatest blessings of being your son. God, I pray that if there's anyone here that, 
has not understood what does it mean to be a child of God, to see and to wait and to feel and to hold your hand, I pray that you would draw them. Oh, open their eyes and show them they were created for you, that their face would be a shining face when they find the peace and the pleasure of God. Lord, nothing in this world will satisfy pleasure or power. We were made for you, and truly, Lord, satisfy us with your power over our lives. You are good. We wait for you. Truly, it is good to go into the house of the Lord to declare all your wondrous works. And it's your name that we pray. Amen. A couple of announcements.